Now they are basically standing up, staring at an empty sky. They are blown away by this moment. I can't imagine all the thoughts that are whirling through their head. The ministry, the death and resurrection, 40 days later, now Jesus appeared to them multiple times over the last 40 days. And then now he's ascended to heaven. They're seeing angels. And basically they are told to wait. And there's like this whirlwind of ideas and thoughts and all that kind of stuff. And now they're told to wait. And they don't know exactly how long they are to wait. Are we talking about days? Are we talking about months? That kind of stuff. They're going to go back home to their little homes and their ordinary mundane lives with all of these experiences and emotions and thoughts whirling around them and a giant question mark from another cryptic message from Jesus. I will not tell you when the kingdom of God comes, but I'll tell you what it looks like and how. Bye. And I know that sounds like a little harsh from Christ, but as a human, we know how we think, right? And we know how we would interpret that. And there'd be so many things going on in us. And so they make their journey back. Yet, they're committed. They're committed. They have seen Christ. They have seen the risen Messiah. And they have seen all this and they're committed. And so the first task that they're going to do is to rebuild the 12, to replace Judas. So chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called the Mount of Olives, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered Jerusalem, that Sabbath journey day away, that doesn't mean like it was an entire day's journey to get to the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, because you can actually do it like in under an hour. What it means is it was a Sabbath day's journey. It was the day's journey according to what the Pharisees allowed on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees had like how many miles you were allowed to walk. They said, well, everybody lives within about a mile of the synagogue, so you can walk a mile on the Sabbath. But if you walk two miles, you're violating the Sabbath. And so the implication is this is how long it took to walk there and back is about a Sabbath day, what the Pharisees allowed for. And they went upstairs in the room where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James were there. All these continued together in prayer with one mind, together with the women, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus and all of his brothers. We've talked about this over and over and over again throughout the First Testament. The Bible is the only thing in all of the world that gives women value. There are a few cultures here and there throughout history, but there are no other religions that really give women value, minorities value, other ethnicities, age groups. Christ is the only, the Bible is the only thing that gives children value. All throughout the world, in fact, the entire understanding that we have of women being equal, other ethnicities being equal. The feminist movement was completely born out of biblical principles, biblical ideas. Without the Bible, we would have none of those concepts. Like we would know if it feels wrong to feel just unjustly violated or ignored, but we wouldn't have the foundation, the building blocks to write a document and establish principles to fight for that or to um, 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 strive for that except for the Bible. All throughout the Bible, God has given prominence to minorities. And I'm going to briefly mention this before. I know a lot of people don't like it when women are not mentioned a lot in the Bible. 
And they say, well, that's not cool. If God really values women and minorities, other ethnicities, why don't they show up more? Why aren't they major characters in the Bible? And the reality is, one, that's not the culture they lived in. They lived in a very patriarchal kind of a culture. That's the kind of way that they expect to read the stories. Yes, God is very countercultural, but he also speaks within the culture. If you don't speak the language and through the means and the mode of the culture, then people don't understand what you're talking about, and then you have no voice. So he speaks through that mode and means, and then he pushes on the culture and turns it upside down and that kind of stuff. And so what he does is he speaks through the means and the culture and the mode in a patriarchal kind of a way. They are the main characters. And then as he does that, he introduces the minorities and um, the women and begins to push them against the cultural norm in order to emphasize that the way that you view culture and the way that you expect me to communicate is not correct. The second reason that he does this is because you don't want to be the major character in God's stories. The major characters are always screw-ups. They're always failing. The main idea of the Bible is twofold. And I know that's kind of a contradiction to the main ideas too. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yet Yahweh has loved you and pursued you despite that in order to redeem you. Okay, that's the main idea. And it has two branches to it. And so in order to illustrate that it's all about failed people, when you, when you really read the stories, Abraham's a scumbag. David's a scumbag. There is no way I would let him anywhere near my daughters if he was alive. I don't care how many psalms you've written and what your heart feels like, David. You're not anywhere near me. Okay? He's a horrible, evil man. And so are other people. And what you realize is, we talked about this last week, where Ittite the Gittite, and Uriah the Hittite, and Arana the Jebusite, and all these foreigners step up, and they, they, they're the foil. In literature, this is called a foil, where somebody, a minor character, is the complete opposite of the major character in order to emphasize those things about the major character. So Abraham is generously being, giving his land away to Lot and Lot selfishly taking everything he can. And as a one-dimensional character with one character trait, Lot is emphasized his greediness to emphasize how generous Abraham is being here. And so that's what a foil is. So these minor characters are used as a foils. They here's this culturally insignificant person in the view of the culture who seems very one-dimensional because that's the way the world would view them, is still showing way more faith and way more committed and being used by God in a more powerful way than the major character who's multi-dimensional and supposed to be the culturally dominant person. And so this is what God does. If he turns the woman in the minority into the main character, then he'll start showing how they're all sinful and flawed, which then just promotes that cultural idea that you're insignificant even more. And so I hope that kind of makes sense. So that when God's doing this, he's got a twofold reason. And so what he's showing here is that the women are there as well. That would never exist in every, any Pharisee um, gathering. You had to understand that the disciples are the new Pharisees. Every man's desire was to be chosen by a Pharisee and to be trained and discipled by them and then raised up. And if you didn't make the cut, well, then you became a blacksmith or a tanner or a fisherman or a farmer or that kind of stuff. And that was every man's job. That was the way you escaped the farm or the blacksmith or whatever. And if you didn't get chosen, then you went to that. And here Jesus comes along and chooses these 12 guys that are the rejecteds by every other Pharisee that could have trained them up. And then he chooses women. And he gathers around them. And they have equal status. 
And they, they're, they're there for him. And then they don't bail on him at the cross like the men do. And then now they're here. And they're praying and reading the word with the men. And they've been given the same commission as the men have. The idea is that there is no distinction between men and women and their equality here by way God is using them and the, the, their value in the kingdom of God. This is a significant statement that they state. And so in those days, Peter stood up among the believers and a gathering of about 120 people. This is a lot. I think we get the idea when we see Sunday school pictures that there's only like a few gathering in the upper room. But there's a lot of people here. And he said, brothers, the scriptures, scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David concerning Judas, who became the guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted as one of us and received a share in ministry. And now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his unjust deed. And falling head first, he burst open in the middle of all the, in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. And this because because and this because known to all who live in Jerusalem, so that in their own language they call the field Hakadam, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his house become deserted, and let there be no one to live in it. Let another take his position of responsibility. Thus one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time, the Lord Jesus associated with us, beginning from his baptism by John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of resurrection together with us. So he stands up and he quotes scripture. And he talks about how Judas basically was one of them. He was chosen by Christ. He followed them. He was seen all the things that they did. He ministered with them. And then he basically betrayed Christ. And he's now no longer one of them. Or as in the words of 1 John, he says, they left us because they did not belong to us. And now that they've left us, they've showed that they never did belong to us. And if they had been belonged to us, they never would have left us. And you're like, okay, we get the point. But that's the idea. Jews couldn't stay with them and persevere. Therefore, he shows that he never was one of them, even though he's counted among them. He looked like he's one of them. And so he betrayed them. Now, this gospel said that he hung himself. But now Paul, Peter is saying that his intestines burst out, and that's how he died. Now, that's easily reconciled. It's very possible that this, this, both of them happened. They hung himself. The branch broke. He got impaled somehow. His intestines came out, all that kind of stuff. There's lots of ways that you can die. Um, work construction, and you will find out. Then he quotes scripture talking about how Jesus is going to do this. It's a fulfillment of scripture. The point here is not about Judas. It's not about him betraying Jesus. It's not about all that. That was dealt with the Gospels. The point is that Scripture has been fulfilled in Jews betraying Christ. Therefore, Scripture is to be fulfilled in replacing him. The Scripture clearly foretold that there must be twelve. And the idea is rebuilding the twelve. Rebuilding the twelve. And so what he's saying is that this is the rebuilding of Israel. Now remember, Israel has always been referred to as the twelve tribes. This is the quickest and shortest hand form of saying Israel, the 12. And in the ancient world, in the past, there actually weren't 12, 12, 12 tribes. There were 13. I'm not going to go into all of that. If you want that, go to Exodus chapter, um, well, actually Genesis 49. Go to Genesis 49, 48 and 49, and I'll talk about 
and my audio, how that works. But basically, there were 13 tribes because Joseph was a tribe, but he got doubled through his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They were lifted up by Jacob to the same status of Joseph. And so since they were Joseph's kids, Joseph became two tribes. And those became added to the other brothers of Jacob. And so there were 13 tribes. But God called them 12 all the time. That's a much longer conversation. Go to the audio. I'll explain why he called them 12. Yes, God knows how to count. But it's basically his baker's dozen kind of a thing. So now we have the 12 disciples. But who made the 13th? Jesus. Jesus is the 13th. He was the one with them. So there were actually 13 people. Jesus as the rabbi and the 12 disciples following him. And so 13 is this number of Israel. And now even though Jesus left and they're going to replace Judas, he told them to wait until the what comes? The Holy Spirit comes and dwells them. So there's still 13 because Jesus makes it very clear the Holy Spirit is an extension of himself. It is the same thing as himself. And so there's a 13. And so the idea is that Israel needs to be rebuilt. Israel needs to be rebuilt. Israel is the chosen people of God. And what's interesting is that we're going to see this when we get to Revelation. And in Revelation, there's going to be 13 foundations to the city of Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And there's going to be 13 gates. And we're told very clearly 13 foundations are Israel and the 13 gates are the 12 disciples who represent the beginning of the church. Both the Christians, the church, the way we think of it, and Israel are part of the same house, the same building, um, which goes into what we're going to see in Acts of Jews and Gentiles coming together. The idea is Israel needs to be rebuilt. God wants a complete people, a complete community of Christ. They're going to replace them. What do they begin to do? They begin to read the scriptures. Now for them, the scriptures of the First Testament. And then they begin to pray. And they pray. And they read. And they pray. And they read. And they pray and they read and they go to choose another. And their criteria for choosing in the midst of praying and reading scripture is they must have been with Jesus from the moment that they were baptized under John the baptizer and then chose to follow Jesus throughout his entire life that he did his his entire ministry on earth and that they witnessed the resurrection and they have proclaimed the resurrection. Okay, so that they've already, they've been there from the very beginning. They, they, were, they may have not been the 12, but they were in the background, listening, following. They showed their interest way before Jesus got baptized with John. They then switched to Jesus. They followed him. They listened to his teachings. They were committed to him. They then saw the resurrection. And they were so influenced by this that they were willing to begin to proclaim it and talk about it to other people. And that's their criteria at the same time that they're praying and reading scripture. And that becomes the basis. They must have, basically in a modern day terminology, if you're picking somebody to lead your ministry, you're going to be reading scripture, look, allowing God to guide you. You're going to be re- praying. And your criteria is they must have lived multiple years of walking with Christ and demonstrating fruit and good character. And that's basically what they're saying here. And so they're going to choose. And so they proposed two candidates, Joseph called Barsabbas, or also Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed. So notice that they're going back to prayer. They've been led to two candidates, 
and they go back to prayer. And the Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us the one these two you have chosen, of these two that you've chosen, to assume the task of this service and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside, to go to his own place. Then they cast lots for them, and the one chosen was Matthias. And so he was counted with the eleven apostles. So they prayed again with two people. They're surrendering. They're seeking to know God's decision based on knowing the hearts of these two men. And then they cast lots. Now, what is casting lots? It's kind of the idea of drawing straws and whoever gets the longest one is it. In the ancient world, this comes from the priestly garments. Um, God commanded the priests because not everybody had the Holy Spirit upon them all the time to speak to them. And you couldn't always check everyone. The priests were to um, have a vest and the high priest wore this vest. And he put two stones in it, the urim and the thurum. And he put two stones in and they would throw it on the ground or a table or whatever. They would ask God a question, a yes or no, we think. And then God would answer based on how these stones fell. And then they would, they, that would be their answer. This seems a lot like flipping a coin to us. It feels a lot like occultic paganism, kind of witchcraft kind of stuff. And yeah, it does sound like that. Um, but what God is not saying is that's how you make life, major life decisions with flipping coins. The difference was that God told them to do it this way. And he regulated how they did it. They were only allowed to do it with this object, with this man, and only in this way within this land of Israel. And that was it. And it was only for a time. And so they're going to that. They're going to that route of picking. Now, some people have argued that this is wrong of them. This is wrong of them. This is wrong because a lot of times when people choose things by lot in the Old Testament, things go wrong. Okay? Things go wrong. And think bad things happen. However, everything is different now with Christ and the Holy Spirit. Everything is getting flipped. Going eastward represented exile in the Old Testament, the First Testament. But now going eastward doesn't mean that. When Christ goes eastward out of Egypt into Israel, it wasn't bad. Christ is changing all these ideas because he's now guiding them. Yes, that could be bad. How, and then some say, well, they should, if they, only they had waited 10 more days. Then the Holy Spirit would have come and it would have been a more godly decision. Yeah, that's easy in hindsight, but they don't know how long, right? The last time God said, I'm going to take you in exile and then I'll bring you back within about 70 years. It ended up being 400 years before God brought the Messiah. Okay, and so how long? We see this with Elijah when he goes to Obadiah. And Elijah's like, I'm back. Go tell the king that I'm here. And he's like, no, 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 no. The last time you disappeared, you disappeared for three years. How do I know you won't do that to me again? They don't know how long they should wait. That's a long, what if it ends up being decades and they only have 11? Well, they're all dead by then. They don't know how long to wait. And what they're doing is they're going to scripture. The emphasis, Luke does not believe what they're doing is wrong. Because Luke keeps emphasizing the reading of Scripture. Luke keeps emphasizing the emphasis on prayer. Luke keeps emphasizing their desire to know the hearts of men only through God. And that's all he cares about. And then some people say, well, Paul was supposed to actually be the 12th. And if they would have just waited, God would have picked him the 12th. No, 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 no. Paul doesn't fit the criteria. Paul wasn't there. Now, some people argue, well, Paul was being raised under Gamaliel, who was the highest, most respected Pharisee. And so I think Gamaliel would have been there with Jesus as such a controversial figure. 
and that kind of stuff. And Paul, as his right-hand man or his disciple, would have been there as well. So he would have seen, yeah, that's totally valid. In fact, I'm willing to argue pretty strongly that's true. But that's not the same thing as being there from the very beginning that Jesus was an unknown under the discipleship of John the baptizer, being with Jesus every single village that he went to and taught, and proclaiming the resurrection already at this point in his life. And so Paul doesn't fit that criteria. In fact, when Paul converts later in Acts, he will disappear for three years to get his head straight with this new idea of who Jesus is in connection to the Old Testament before he even begins to preach anything and confidently say anything. So I think that Paul would even say, I don't fit that criteria. Okay, and once again, how long do you wait? Do you wait another 10 years for Paul to get his head straight with the Holy Spirit before you complete the 12? Well, by then, some of the 12 are already beginning to die or really close to being persecuted or martyred. I don't believe, nor does Luke, it seems, to communicate that they're doing anything wrong here. They're doing the best that they can with what they know according to what scriptures have told them to do in order to make decisions for Israel. And they're doing this. And God blesses it. Nowhere does the narrator or God anywhere later say they screwed up. They did anything wrong. And they just choose Matthias. Some people say, yeah, but he's never mentioned ever again in the book of Acts. And Paul's talked about a lot. Yeah, well, neither is Matthew or Bartholomew or Thomas, Andrew, John. They're, barely, they're not even mentioned after this. Um, John barely gets mentioned. And Peter takes second fiddle halfway through Acts to Paul. So that doesn't fit either. What they're doing here is seeking scripture and praying. That's it. That's all you can do. Even today with the Holy Spirit, that's pretty much what we can do. They choose a 12 in order to complete it. And now they have 12 as the witness. Now Israel and the church are complete, what will be later known as the church. Now that they're complete, the Holy Spirit's ready to come. Not that the Holy Spirit would have waited for them, because we know he has to come in 10 days, because we know hindsight. 